Hey there, I'm Aaron Martell. And I'm Ray Zimmer. And welcome to Albumatics, a podcast where we discuss and analyze a musical album of our choice. This episode, we welcome back to the podcast guest co-pilot James Seamus Dillard. Seamus, good to have you back on the show. So good to hear you guys again. All right. Uh, Excellent. So in this episode, we're going to tackle Def Leppard's 1981 album, High and Dry. Seamus, tell us your Def Leppard story when you discovered them in this album in particular. Oh, wow. You know, the the song that I think I heard first was Wasted off of the On Through the Night. First album, yeah. Yeah, either it was either Wasted or uh, maybe Rock and Roll Brigade, I think, was the second song. And it was, you know how they used to have those comp albums where uh, different record companies would throw new bands, you know, like, you know, 12 songs from 12 different bands? Like K-Tel? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of, yeah. kind of. Yeah. I, I almost think it was that was the first time I'd heard Def Leppard. It was like on a comp. Yeah. On some kind of comp, you know, new wave of heavy metal bands. Um, and, and I liked wasted right away. And Ray, you, you, you'll know why. Cause it was so easy to play on guitar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They had a couple of those back in the day for yeah. sure. <laughs> and, and you know, they, they, that, that album was produced by Tom Alm that did the priest albums. Um, so I, I kind of got tuned into them a little bit. And then when this album came out, I don't know how I heard about it first. I don't know if it was pre-MTV or if it was part of the MTV explosion, but I, I do definitely recall, um, you know, the hits from this song. And and the the first thing I remember was like, oh, they kind of sound like a cross between Great White and ACDC. Hmm. Wow, that's, All right. that's a pretty good description. I yeah. never thought of it that way, but yeah, that's a good way to put it. Ray. Well, with Def Leppard, I can remember specifically being with my parents in a pizza place in Daleson, Connecticut in 1983, and somebody played a photograph on the jukebox, and like ever since then, every time I hear that song, like I just get this image, or I get this like immediate scent of like pepperoni pizza, <laughs> and a, a video, and an image of like a, a tabletop asteroids game <laughs> sitting somewhere. Those were awesome. Yeah, those are mint. <laughs> But uh, that was my introduction to the band itself. And then kind of later on in junior high, Hysteria from, came out, and I liked that. I went back and then got back into Pyromania as an entire album. But I think with High and Dry, my buddy Dave got it, and this was kind of like one of the songs that would play in the background when we were playing Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> this um, Iron Maiden's Power Slave album, and Wasps, the, the, what the, the last, last command. command. Yeah, those were like all constant rotation while I was killing orcs. Uh, <laughs> Proof that D&D is a gateway to Satanism. Exactly. <laughs> Blackie Lawless had his own special set of 20-sided die made of animal bones or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was really it. Like, I didn't even know about this album until like one day. I thought like it was just pyromania and hysteria. And I had like uh, I was homesick one day on the radio and it came on Rock 102. I was like, "Holy crap!" A Def Leppard song I never heard. It was like bringing on the heartbreak. Bringing on the heartbreak, yeah. I was like, well, and then yeah, kind of Dave and I had to hunt it down. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was also 1983. I remember it clearly. I remember hearing "Photograph." It was on the radio actually, and I dug that tune right away. Even though I thought the band had a goofy name, Def Leppard. What the fuck? <laughs> but it coincided with me rediscovering hard rock and heavy metal music and taking to it like a fish to water. Prior to that, I was in kind of a pop purgatory where I drifted away from heavy rock and I was listening to like pop radio from about 1980 to 83, somewhere in there. But by 83, we got MTV and along with that, I had my rock reawakening and then I started getting into the rock and metal bands that were coming up as well as revisiting the old music I loved as a little kid. So I got Pyromania on cassette right away and I dug that. It ended up being loaded with hits, and Def Leppard just blew up all of a sudden. And then later on, I got high and dry after seeing the video for Bringing On The Heartbreak. And I think it was the re... Because there were two videos. They did the original video, Mm -hmm. where uh, Joe's wearing that purple sparkly shirt. (laughs) Is that the one where uh, Rick Allen's wearing like the the Union Jack underwear or something (laughs) like that? (laughs) Playing behind the kit. And then later on, they they re-released it. They did another video, and Phil Collin was in the band by then. And and, uh, that's the video I remember seeing, and that's that kind of inspired me to go get high and dry so mm-hmm. there it is and your thompson twin albums were forever just <laughs> buried top, in the mix it, it went back to the pop purgatory <laughs> where it remained and belonged yes <laughs> so now i'll pass along some basic facts about this record and if the facts are wrong i blame wikipedia 
High and Dry is the second studio album by the English rock band Def Leppard, released on July 11, 1981, on the Vertigo label in the UK and the Mercury label in the US. It was produced by Robert John Mutt Lang and was recorded from March to June 1981 at Battery Studios, London, England. It reached number 26 on the UK Albums Chart and number 38 on the US Billboard 200 Chart and is certified two times platinum by the RIAA. And here's the band's lineup card. We have Joe Elliott on lead vocals, Steve Clark on guitar and vocals, Pete Willis on guitar and vocals, Rick Savage on bass and vocals, and Rick Allen on drums and vocals. All right, let's get into a track-by-track analysis of this album. We lead things off with Let It Go, written by Pete Willis, Steve Clark, and Joe Elliott. Seamus, what do you think about this? Great song, great leadoff song. Um, I think if if you put the needle down on the record, and this is the first thing that comes out, it really defines what this album is. The lyrics, cool woman, cool eyes, you got me hypnotized. I mean, he just weaves in and out of this. He kind of stakes his claim right away with the song. I, I don't know if I can, you know, at, at this advanced age, um, I kind of laugh at some of the lyrics from back then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to get yeah. ready for the big C. I wonder. <laughs> I wonder what he's talking about. <laughs> great rhythms, great build up. Opens up into what will you know become known as those big Def Leppard choruses. Um, a great trading lead going back and forth. Uh, well, I, I guess most of the leads are, are Clark based, but then Willis gets the like the ride out on the end. I, I, it's funny, Ray just asked about guitars when we were, we were getting ready to go, and we talked about the two guitar bands. I never considered these guys like the twin guitars, like a Tempted and Downing or the Iron Maiden or, or some of the other bands, but I see both of them as very important to the to the sound and to the rhythm base, and I think you notice that once uh, Phil comes in and takes over. Yeah, definitely. Ray? It's a a great way to open up this album. You've got a solid riff to begin with. You've got like the ACDC style backbeat with the rhythm section, which is always a a good go-to for for a song. Um, I like how the guitars kind of build in the verse section where you just hear the bass and Joe Elliott and the drum in the back, and then it kind of starts to build up and more guitar comes in and it gets heavier and heavier. Uh, they got that classic gang vocal on the, on the chorus, which um, they weren't trying to be the Beatles or Queen. They did have, Def Leppard had their own style of gang vocal. Yeah. And I'm sure it was probably imitated later on down the line by other bands as well. But up until that point, unless there's another band that was doing that ty- that style, I was, I'm completely unaware of it. And the bridge section is kind of proof that Willis and Clark, you know, they came armed with riffs to this album. Later on, I, I don't hear as much solid in-your-face riffage as it does as it do on this album particularly the last go through the verse they just go balls out which i really kind of like they don't even like try to build the tension it just like hits you over the head which is kind of cool and the song a song has like a great classic 80s bombastic ending yeah which you know I've, i'm a big fan of i have no problem as long as they don't like go too long with it you know <laughs> and i think the drummer's trying out every piece of his set while you're trying to go through the end that gets to be a bit much but this is done in a nice package yeah so, yeah the Def Leppard guitars have a certain tone in the early days, and I call it snarling. It doesn't growl or wail. You know, it, it, it has its own tone. It, it sounds. It's they have their own sound. Mm. It kind of grabs you right away with this track. Mutt Lang is all over this though. His production stamp is evident oh, yeah. in the big backing vocals and the gloss on the production. But at least on this album, it's toned down a bit. It doesn't get as crazy as it would later on. You know, in the, in the subsequent albums. Right. I don't love the sound of the drums, though. It's very 80s, and it doesn't sound natural, even though it's a real kit. <laughs> the electronic drums are still years away, but it's right. almost they almost sound electronic the way they're treated. I, 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 the drums bug me a little bit. 
Joe Elliott doesn't have a particularly powerful voice. You know, it's a little thin. It kind of strains a bit when he goes for really high notes, but it works. You know, for especially you know for this material, it works pretty well. The band for me is definitely a sum of its parts kind of group. Individually, none of these players is going to blow you away, but together they rock it out. You know, they have a chemistry. Mm-hmm. This song is a super catchy chorus and it rocks hard. I dig the cowbell, and as an opening track, it does the job to hook you into the album. Lyrically, it's about a blowjob. Nothing more. And if you think you're going to listen to this record for lyrical depth, holy shit, do you have the wrong band. Joe's final scream is good, and we're off and running. This was the first single that reached number 34 on the U.S. mainstream rock tracks chart. I think the big C is Big Croissant. I think <laughs> croissant. That's, he's offering pastries. Yeah. It's simple. It's childlike. You know, it's... <laughs> he's such a gentleman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One lump or two, Joe. (laughs) The next track is Another Hit and Run, written by Rick Savage and Joe Elliott. Seamus, your thoughts? Good song. Obviously, um, it's great where it is on the uh, track to the second song in. It's a song about Britain. I picked that up on the, uh, obviously, the lyrics here with Union Jack is back with a hole in his head and all this. I've heard, uh, I don't know how true it is, but I heard this was a a song where they were kind of giving it back to uh, English uh, media or the British press because they had gotten some bad reviews with their first album and they weren't well liked when they were out there touring on the road they were almost dismissed and they were kind of pissed off about it that's what i've always heard these lyrics were about i don't know if that's true or not um good lead this is one of those leads where it's being shared uh clark first willis second and and i want to go back to not just this song but every song on the album i agree with what you were saying about mutt being all over this album i mean i can't imagine what these at, at this point very young men sitting in there with Mutt Lange, who just came off of two huge, or what would become huge, ACDC records back-to-back with the cars thrown in maybe or something, and then they get uh, Mutt Lange to produce their next album. And I just imagine that, you know, they're just sitting there, well, what did Angus do? How, how did Malcolm do this? Yeah. And, and a little-known fact is that the reason Mutt produced this record is because Def Leppard's manager also happened to be ACDC's manager, and they were really being pushed out of the gate, and they were not getting the success they wanted, and they thought Mutt could sprinkle some of his magic on, and I think he did more than sprinkle a little bit. I guess. Mm. Ray? Um, well, it's the nice, cool, the cool thing about this, they have a nice twin guitar thing that kind of is the intro. Uh, it's solid. It's almost kind of the the melody is a little bit on the minimalist side. I'll talk a little bit later about their attempts at twin lead stuff. I mean, some of it makes me want a little bit more in that department, but that's also just because that's my own personal uh, interest. But I like how it breaks out like that moody arpeggiated guitar figure. Also, is that a chorus effect on the on the, gu- the guitars themselves? It's, is like, that why it sounds so big? Yeah, I, yeah. I'm wondering if that's it. But yeah. um, and then when they just totally get rid of that, the clean section, then they. Just, Throw some some uh, crunch on it, and then they turn into like a really solid riff uh, behind the verse section. I like uh, how the the solo, the first solo, uh, first pass of the solo, it's got kind of like your standard rock, blues rock cliches going on. But the second solo that seems to come back has some really great trem picking, and I'm not sure which one of the which one of the guys is doing that, but I I cu- pops up a couple in a couple different places in there, this album in different songs. It's pretty cool. That's Willis. Oh, that's Willis. Oh, well done, Mr. Willis. Whatever he was drinking, it happened to work. <laughs> that particular day. Yeah. yeah. But I like how they kind of return back to the harmony lead in the end. You know, they kind of like, uh, they bookend it, which is kind of cool for the songwriting thing. 
Yeah, this is another good one. There's that quiet verse, loud chorus thing going on that's used very often in rock music, but it works well here. To me, the guitars are less about utilizing interplay than coming at you together, playing the same good riff, and then just creating a thicker sound, probably with effects on it like we were talking about. There's a youthful energy to this that the band would quickly lose in later years and become like more professional or more stale, in my opinion. But the ambition of Def Leppard is already becoming apparent with the hookiness of the chorus, and Mutt Lang was the guy to take them there with that, kind of what Seamus was saying. The guitarists trade off on the solos, and they're okay. I actually like the connective riff between the two solos. That's the part of it I like. Yeah, I like yeah, that yeah, little yeah. little yeah. riff between the two solos. Yeah. I read that the lyrics, kind of piggybacking on what Shana said, I kind of I read that the lyrics address the fact that Def Leppard took some early criticism for making it obvious that they wanted to be a hit in America and touring more there as opposed to establishing themselves in the UK more, that there, were, there was a backlash against them for their emphasis on courting America. Uh-huh. They also had a track called Hello America on their first album that they also took that. a lot of shit for, too. Yeah. yeah. Whatever it's about, I do dig this song. Yeah, it's one of my favorites on this album, actually. Right, right, yeah. The following track is the title track, High and Dry, Saturday Night, written by Steve Clark, Rick Savage, and Joe Elliott. Seamus, what do you say? Another great song. This and Let It Go probably are the two bookends of this, uh, you know, for that sound and that that energy like you were talking about on the last track. High and Dry is, is exactly where Leopard were or was at that time. They hadn't become Deaf Leopard yet that we would learn later, but this was them just being a rock band or maybe even a metal band although they never liked that term yeah um they were certainly grouped in with metal oh yeah oh yeah at this point yeah yeah i know this one got a lot of airplay on mtv or vh1 or whatever it was we used to watch all the time uh, i don't know It, it it builds well you start to, on all these songs on this album, if you just break each song down and listen to them, like you guys were saying, a lot of them have those very quiet beginnings. They're a, a basic guitar with a, a drums, and then they just layer so well until you're just, it's its a kick in the teeth with that sound. And I think it's the mid-range that, that gives them that distinct sound. It's got a little bit more snarl to it yeah. than, than, than some of the other heavy metal that was going out at that time. Like treble-based uh, Trouble yeah. Just, yeah, 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 that yeah. makes sense. Part of the filthy fifteen, right? I yes. Guys, I don't care if you guys remember all that horse shit. Oh yeah, filthy fifteen. PMRC. Oh right, right. Fifth. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> this was one of them. Oh really? Can you believe that? Are you shitting me? Oh no. wow. Okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't. I'm not sure what qualified for the filthy 15 but i gotta think it was those tight pants that joe used to wear (laughs) (laughs) yeah could be ray what do you think um it's kind of i like the intro riff on like just the guitar sounds but it's weird it's kind of like it you can tell they were taking some pages out of like the young brothers book there's a little bit of a stonesy swagger to it but i can't just it's cool sound but it, it doesn't sound like I don't know, it just sounds like it's not going anywhere. Then when like the rest of the band kind of kicks in, then it, you can see where it's going. Yeah. And I like the fact that it sounds weird. So there's nothing wrong with that. Um, this is a basic classic beer and party song, and you can't go wrong there. They knew how to do it, obviously enough. You got cool gang vocals on the pre-chorus and the chorus. The guitar solo, the development of it. We were talking about Jakey Lee, how he knew how to develop yeah. the solo. I thought it was the solo was developed well. Um, actually, one of the riffs to it, Reminded me of uh, one of the guys in Tesla and their song "Song and Emotion," which is about Steve Clark. Yeah, about Steve Clark. Yeah, that dare, 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 that minor third and yeah. root thing. That's that's like a Clarkism, and that the, the fact that I got to hear that in that song and made me think of that song, you know, years in the future as tribute done to it. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I got for that one. 
I've always fucking loved this song. It's got a dirty groove to it that matches the sex and booze, having a good time on Saturday Night lyrics. I still hate the drum sound, but I dig the riffs, and I love the pre-chorus and the chorus, very sing-along. I like how there's just one guitar and the drums at the beginning of each verse and then builds to each chorus, like we've been saying. Pete Willis plays the solo, and to me it sounds so much like Angus Young, it sounds like Pete paid a lot of attention to that other band Mutt Lang was producing. <laughs> it's one of my favorites on this album, though bizarrely, as we were saying, it was named one of the Filthy 15 songs, uh, supposedly for its explicit drug and alcohol abuse lyrics. Yeah, right. Jeez. What the fuck? <laughs> Tipper, come on. The next track is Bringing on the Heartbreak, written by Steve Clark, Pete Willis, and Joe Elliott. Seamus, you like this one? I do like this one, despite myself, because it's one of those <laughs> it's one of those songs, you know? It's like, it is perfectly packaged to be an 80s ballad. And I, I just listened to it to get ready for the show again, and I the version that was on Spotify was the one with the added keyboards. Okay. Uh, yeah. and, and I just, I don't remember that. From 84. Yeah. yeah, and it, it's like... Wow, that really fucking blows. Who? Yeah. <laughs> what, how much cocaine were you guys doing to think that that was? <laughs> but but the song itself is wonderful. I think it 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 Mirror Mirror and Lady Strange, which we'll talk about. I think those are the three songs that really give us a glimpse into what Def Leppard would become. And I think it gave them a glimpse. And and you know how it is with a little bit of success, you you, you start to want more, and then, it goes to your head. Yeah, and the next thing you know, you're recording Shandy, and it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you're looking back, going, why? Um, but <laughs> but it's a great song. It's got great build. I think it's the best lead on the whole you know project. Um, it, it's well placed. Every note's well placed. This is the to me the best Def Leppard song before Rick's accident. Very good. Ray? So, the, yeah, this is the song. I was 14 years old. I'd been exposed to chicken pox my entire life. <laughs> I didn't get it till I was 14 years old. Had wow. some scar on my head. Oh, shoot. But, uh, yeah, I was sick as a dog. I remember being in my room, and uh, that's when I heard the song for the first time. And this is the song. I was like, holy crap, there's more songs, and there's more albums. Than so you hear it now, and you think about being itchy and cow line motion. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and being able to smell the pus. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> how, how hard was it to masturbate? <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was about a good week and a half of hand celibacy. But um, <laughs> anywho, <laughs> now that I brought it down to that level, uh, <laughs> I've always loved the guitar part in the song. Like um, the intro, the parts that are kind of underlying the chorus, and the, there's like that great slow gallop in the pre-chorus, which I always thought was cool. Yeah. It really kind of yeah. builds the drama for this song. Yes. And uh, the chorus is like a perfect like blend of um, catchiness and gang vocals. So it does have that going for it. And I like how in the chorus, this is a Def Leppard thing. That I know it's kind of part of their sonic thumbprint. But I like how they're not even really playing power chords. They're just playing like the root north. They're playing the A, the F, and then they hang on the G. That I I always thought that was a kind of a. They're not like palm muting it or anything like that. They're just kind of like letting it ring out. Ray, that um, reminds me. Uh, there was an interview with I don't know if it was Willis or Clark. I think it was Clark at one point, and he said that they played every note in the chords as a single note and then layered them. Oh wow, wow. That's that had to be a Mutt Lang thing. Yeah, that sounds like a. Mutt That's thing. the way he records, I believe. Right, super piecemeal, super right. meticulous. Holy crap! 
I can't even imagine the type of discipline it would take. That's crazy. How could you not fucking strangle the guy? I'm just saying, <laughs> that's, oh. that's what I would be like. I could see myself, like, as a musician doing, like, after playing, you know, you know, bars and shows and stuff like that, and have this, like, guy come and tell me to do like that. Yeah. I could see, like... And I knew know, they, they had issues with his methods here. And, I mean, they, they kind of fell in line with him, so mm-hmm. that's why they worked with him, you know, so well. But yeah. they were like, holy shit, this guy yeah. <laughs> makes us work for it. That's insane, though. Well, I well, I mean, I guess it worked for him in the long run, but that's yeah. totally takes animal retentiveness to the new level. But um, but the solo is good. It's got some Jimmy Pageism. It's got some unison bends, and it got some nice little uh, trills in there too. It's tasteful. Yeah, so, yeah. It's the big power ballad, and it's a really good one. You can tell the band and Mutt lavished attention on this, and they knew it was going to be a big song on this record. I dig the slow jangle in the guitars and the verses, and it's apparent Pete's guitar is slightly detuned to make it distinguishable from Steve's, and I read that is a trick that they did. There's pop hooks all over the pre-chorus, which I love. You were saying that, Ray. And it's a huge chorus that totally sticks to landing. Steve's solo is melodic and memorable. To my ears, it seems like when they're leading, Steve is kind of like the more melodic... Uh, tasteful, for the lack of a better word, where Pete is more like the rock-out, right. let-it-rip kind of guy. Okay. I feel like this is Joe's best vocal performance on the album. He brings some feeling. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, he brings definitely. some feeling in the verses, and I love the no shouts before the solo. The lyrics are about the girl who's ruining the relationship, steering it towards its inevitable end, burning the guy out. This has remained a concert staple. The only track from this record, Def Leppard, still consistently plays live. And it was the second single, which didn't do anything chart-wise in 81. But they remixed it, like we've been saying, with a few synthesizer overdubs. Put it out again in 84, and this time it reached number 61 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. And MTV played the redone music video constantly. After the track fades, there's a one-note bass line that segues into the following track... And that following track is Switch 625, written by Steve Clark. Seamus, how about this? Uh, yeah, it is. A, it's an instrumental that Steve wrote. <laughs> Ray? <laughs> uh, well, hold on, hold on. <laughs> wait, there's more. Wait a minute, wait, wait. <laughs> just, just for those three fans who love this song. Oh, hey, that's me. Right? It's, it's good. It, yeah. It, it, it's it's good. It's layered. It, it builds on itself. I think it's it, Steve did a great job with it, but I don't know why it's here. It's not a Tesla or a Rick Emmett intro to a song. It's not a Rush masterpiece instrumental. It's just kind of here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you got to finish off side one yeah, after okay. the big ballad, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Um, I actually, I got, I, yeah, I'm def, I've always liked this one. Um, <laughs> suppose I'm getting ahead of my notes, but I got to get this off my chest. What I have read, cause I was wondering what the fuck is a 625 about? Yeah. The one rumor was that it was the exact moment when Steve Clark lost his virginity. Yeah. June 25th. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is fucking awesome. Yeah. But this song is like eighties hard rock surf. Like this, if like if if you probably bumped it up a couple BPMs, it could have been a great surf song, like <laughs> on the tradition of Hank Marvin in the Shadows, Apache. Uh, but you got that moody, cool guitar riff in the A section. I caught. I broke this down into varying A sections. I mean, there's like probably like maybe one or really one or main thing that like repeats throughout. Yeah. Yeah, the the A two section has, has got like this. That's when he starts playing on like the uh, higher strings that melody that. I call it the surf sounding section, a la Miserlou. It does it again. A variation does another variation on that melody with like a little few more. It's like na 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 na. It gets totally square. Yeah. It's probably what gives the, the surfy aspect to it in my mind. And then the A four. It's just another variation of that main riff. 
And then they do it again with gang vocals just to, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to throw bit. that in because you can never bit. have too much of that. But I, I enjoy that. So, yeah, this is, I guess it'd be a guilty pleasure. I love, and I think that's on the other version of the, on this album, the one with the synths. Yeah. How it doesn't have that lead into that. Yeah. It's, it gives me like auditory blue balls. Yeah. Because I'm ready for that. It's wrong. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's, no, I want to hear the 625. Yeah. It's got to have that bass yeah. at the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what I got. Well, like we, it's a three-minute instrumental rocker that shows off some more of Steve Clark's melodic playing. Again, the musicianship isn't technically proficient, and it isn't going to drop your jaw or anything, but I still like it. It's not boring. I'd never skip it. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on You Got Me Running, written by Pete Willis, Steve Clark, and Joe Elliott. Seamus, your thoughts? Good second uh, side starter song. Uh, hi-hat and guitar groove. Uh, this has become a staple of theirs. You know, that one guitar and, and just uh, simple drums that builds. Rick finally uh, you know, gives us a beat that we can latch on to, and when he does, we ride that beat straight to the chorus. We're starting to see these, these Def Leppard themes, you know. Um, I, I like what Ray said earlier about a sonic time stamp or a sonic... Uh, but, that, but that's what it becomes. It becomes something that, that you can put on almost any Def Leppard uh, song now, you know, 25, 30 years later, and, and hear these reoccurring uh, themes and styles. It, you know, if you read the lyrics on this album, they don't mean much. Like you said earlier, if you're coming to this album for deep meaning, you're probably going to walk away crying. But, <laughs> but, but the, way they're, the, the way that these songs are woven... And the lyrics are a part of just like a guitar or the bass lick or whatever. You don't even have to know what the lyrics are because it's the way, right. you know, he's he's weaving and he's bobbing. Yeah. And he's hard to understand anyway. Oh, yeah. he is. And like you said, on many of these songs, it's a, it's he's he's weaker. It's strained. I, I think like you were saying on heading heading uh, for the heartache, that's where he found himself. Um, yeah. And a couple of these other songs is where you, you hear the definitive Elliot uh, voice and when he dropped a register and he realized that I don't have to scream is when he really found himself I think but but this song I like the song I like the Willis handles the lead on it I like the lead it, it's a great side two starter song Ray um, this is kind of this is a great song it's uh, the verse riff you can hear almost like the Thin Lizzy kind of an influence I know mm. these guys did quite, like Thin Lizzy and Queen the, you'll see them cited as influences of the band and this I think you can hear it like most readily, but um, and that intro riff that like I like how there's a little bit of guitar interplay. There's just that one guy going bam, 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 in yes. the background. Yes. It also made me think of Roxanne by the Police yeah. in the background. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> Good um, well, I was thinking, well, what makes the chorus of the song great? And I think it's the great the gang vocals, and uh, they got that kind of fun little ACDC style. Um, Blues riff turn on there, and you've got me running, but I ain't gonna hide that. Yeah, um, and I nice little lick. It is. It's a nice yeah. lick, and I think that's kind of like when I listen to heavy rock. Like I tend to lean more towards like you know your moodier, darker stuff. Yeah, but I think often it's overlooked that it can also be fun. It can sound kind of like you know you're out having a good time, and this right. song actually kind of sums, especially in the chorus, it kind of sums that up. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's kind of up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I told, and I forget that all the time too. I guess it doesn't always have to be about Moody and Satan yeah. and all that other shit. <laughs> I, I like it too, but I mean that's not always the case. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I got for the song. Yeah, it's a, yet another solid hard rocking tune. Early Def Leppard's chock full of these kind of things. I like the guitar pauses in the verses that let Joe sing along with the drums. Though to me, it feels like Joe's trying a little bit too hard at times, and his vocal affectations get to me a little bit on this one. Mm -hmm. But I will say something, and I think you touched on this a little bit, Seamus. Joe's voice is an important component of Depp Leopard. It is a, a part of the sound. Oh, yeah. And, and way Seamus was saying, you know, bobbing and weaving in with the guitars and stuff like that, you need it there. I yeah. mean, it's, a, it's as much a signature of the Depp Leopard sound as the guitars are. Yeah. 
It's another good, if wordy, chorus, and Pete gets the solo, and it feels to me, like I said, he's kind of the wilder, harder rocking guitarist, while Steve's the more melodic player. The lyrics are about the girl backstabbing and cheating on the guy, and he's got to get the fuck away from her. This is not a major song by any means of theirs, but it's a good album track, and I dig it. you got to have these to round out an album. The next track is Lady Strange, written by Pete Willis, Steve Clark, Rick Allen, and Joe Elliott. Seamus, what do you say? I never needed love before till I met you, girl. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You came into my life like a whirlwind, girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's rhyme girl with girl? <laughs> Joe Elliott School of Lyric Writing. <laughs> It's a, it is a good song. It is a solid song. It's a transformative song. Like I was saying earlier, this is one of the songs that plant the seeds of what would become songs like Too Late um, and, and other songs that became a very definitive part of their style. I love the change for the lead and how it gets aggressive. I could have felt the lead could have been turned up in the mix a little. It kind of got lost. I mean, there's nothing great going on in that lead. It's just, you know, it, it's filler, but it's good. But I think when you look at the lead runs and the, I don't know if you call them middle eights or the bridges before the leads, Def Leppard was never shy about spending four or five riffs to get to a lead. Mm, some, mm. some, you know, some songs will be an A part, a B part, an A part, and then a C part for the lead, and then back to the B, which is the chorus for three times at end. Def Leppard will put a lot of variations of the same lick or the same riff together and give them space and dynamics and give you really interesting bridges that later becomes a huge part of their sound. Yeah. Mm. And, 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 and kind of piggybacking on what Ray was saying about like when he was saying that little riff they do on the last song with the single notes, they are one of the few bands to get the most out of single note playing instead of power chords or, or chord chords. It shows in, in this song and then in, in some of the other songs. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Actually, Seamus, I got to tell you, there's been there's maybe one other song in this album, maybe a couple, where I, I actually like those developed parts in between that lead up to the solo better than some of the chorus the choruses or verse sections. Yeah. Um, oh, me too. Yeah. Yeah. Too. Thanks for pointing that out because that that's something that's like really important. I almost think feel like maybe they almost got away from that at some point later on down the line. Yeah. Um, and so like especially it seems like in hysteria. You mean like the writing became more conventional. Yeah. Or, yeah. But yeah. no. The, but I mean, I thought that they, as far as crafting their songs went, yeah. that could be the Mott Lang influence. That could be what they, sure. what else they brought to the table too. But I liked when they had those different sections to build up the things. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, they changed guitars too. I mean, let's not for, let's not forget that those guys weren't around later. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Yeah. That has to make a big difference. Yeah. Well, it does. It's, it's, it's all. Oh yeah. No. Definitely. Yeah. But yeah, I, I always thought that their songwriting and their riff writing far surpass their actual lead play. Yes. I yeah. Totally agree. Uh, yeah. Totally agree. 100%. 100%. Yep. They were like passable for leads. I mean, they weren't like total, you know, garbage leads. So they could actually say something, but I mean, they're, you weren't going to listen to that like you would listen to like a Steve Moore solo or right. a Steve I solo. Right. Right. No. So Ray, what do you think about the track? All right. Um, you got the intro. It's definitely a Gorham and Robertson style double lead intro, which is always awesome. Uh, you got the cool ass '80s power chord section, a la the Scorpions. And if you think about it, the chorus and, and the verse, are basically variations on the same thing. Which you know what? It worked for Journey on any way you want it. That's the way you need it. And these mm. guys kind of like not saying that it's just like that, but it almost kind of like falls along that same kind oh, of. Yeah, they pattern. toured together last year too. So. Oh, that's right. Yeah, holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> Um, I like the second pass at the verse section. You got like a little bit of call and response between Joe Elliott and whoever's doing the leads to back yep. him up in that part. 
but one of the, my favorite parts of the song is like that uh, that we're talking about the the build up that dun, 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 it's like that galloping yeah. thing that they do before they go into the leads. The first solo, it's kind of the solo actually kind of gets kind of crafty towards the end. I forgot where it is, but there's actually like a little, weird little bass note walk up. If you listen very close, I'm not sure if he's using open strings or whoever's doing it at that time, but you can kind of hear it like like him answering his own lick with like little lower bass note walk ups. Kind of like Queensryche, I have to say though, I wish they did more dual harmony shit. Um, I actually think that these guys probably would have had a better chance of getting it than like guys in Queens like DeGarmo and Tate. I just I think that it they couldn't make it catchy, but these guys could have made it catchy had they had actually been able to work through it more. Yeah, so, that's what I get now, Lady Strange. But good song. It, uh, Rick Allen got a writing credit on this. Yes. Okay. Where? <laughs> I don't, what do you do? <laughs> the word girl. <laughs> probably. Probably. <laughs> I mean, much like the last track, it's a straightforward, hard-rocking, early Def Leppard number. The riffs are solid. I don't think they're quite up to par on this one. Uh, you know, But just when I think this track is getting weak, the bridge right before the soul, like we've been talking about, <laughs> picks up the tempo and energy. It's fucking awesome. Yep. Leading right to Steve's solo. That section alone, what, what, I think we've all been saying, that lifts everything up. It almost redeems the song. The lyrics are dumb and simple. Joe's found himself some strange, which basically is pussy he's never had before, and he's really <laughs> into it. I don't hate this, but it is my least favorite track on the album, and that means it's Aaron's Stinky Stinker. The following track is On Through the Night, written by Steve Clark, Rick Savage, and Joe Elliott. Seamus, late on us. Isn't this an album late? (laughs) (laughs) Like, isn't this the title of their last album? Did they just run out of studio time or they just got sick of Tom and just like left and then waited to do it? But uh, it's great. It's a good song. It's another one of those songs that if it was written for the last album, it certainly didn't fit the rest of that album. So it was worthy of them to keep it and, and see what Mutt could do with it. Um, I love the lead on this one. I love the transitions, uh, the swagger and the ease that they're really finding themselves as musicians. And and I think so much of what this album is is twofold. It's what Mutt pushed them to be and what they were settling on, understanding what they were and what they weren't. And as a musician, that can be a very hard lesson because you always want to be your idols and you always want to be this image of what you think you can do. And at some point you got to go, well, fuck, I'm never going to sound like Rob Halford. And, and I think that this song is really part of that. This is like where they, they, they settled, but not in a bad way. And they took what they had to settle and they, they really built it into their strengths. Elliot's really finding his non-ballad voice. You know, he, he's got that register gone and he's got a little bass in there, a little, you know, he, hey, man, I'm not Bon Scott. It's OK. A decent lead, but it's a, you can tell it's a composite lead. There's at least two or three leads that they've kind of pasted together. Um, at least that, that's the way I felt listening to it. It just didn't have the single flow. But yeah, it's a, it's a great track and it's a great position on the album. Um, again, it's kind of album filler. There's nothing new that we haven't heard on every song leading up to this, but it, it, it doesn't suck. All right. <laughs> right. So Def Lepp pulls a Houses of the Holy, <laughs> where they put the song that we said the title of the last track, <laughs> yep. all of that. But it's great driving rock. Uh, the riff in the verse section is decent. I'll be honest, the chorus is kind of a snooze for me, personally. But the bridge section is actually better, in the arpeggiated section, is actually better than the chorus itself. Again. Uh, and that's... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I swear to God, I think sometimes they write verses and chorus just to get to the fucking bridge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't bore us. Get to the bridge. bridge? <laughs> um, it's funny, though, because on songs like this, 
and songs where they do kind of employ some of the Gallup stuff, you can kind of hear why somebody would lump them in with like the new wave of British heavy metal that was kind of yeah. big at the time. Well, they came out. Yeah, yes. yeah. It just it, they just happened to be like in the right place yes. at the right time. Even though like it doesn't sound like they really bought into that. Yeah. Um, as much. Actually, I read a funny interview with the. I can't remember who the hell it was. Might have been Joe Elliott, but my guess is it's um, Phil Collins, where he's like, "We always identified more with you too." Hmm. I was like, "I'm yeah, no, I'm not hearing that, Phil." Hmm. But hey, he may, different. he may have. Yeah. He may have, yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> yeah, there's a, but the, yeah, this is one of the song, songs they actually have interesting different sections and to build up to the guitar solo, which is you know, like I said, it was a composite solo. It doesn't really kind of grab me. Uh, I actually like the last section that happens before the final verse section. I'm going to sort of expand on what you were talking about, Ray. This track proves to me that this band studied Led Zeppelin's success, and they wanted to emulate that. Uh, they were looking way past the new wave of British heavy metal. They wanted to be the biggest band in the world. That, To me, that's what their ambitions really were. And I think Mutt Lang realized that, or at least it was communicated to him, all right, so I'm going to try to get your sound where it's going to be popular, where it's going to be consumed. I mean, let's face it, the band's names even rhyme. The spelling is similar. You know, they, they, they took off the A. Yeah. The de- you know, they did they did all these things that, like, Led Zeppelin did. I, I can't help but think that they had that in the back of their minds when they were when they were starting out. Just like Zeppelin's Houses of the Holy, Def Leppard puts a title track on a different album, and they think they can get away with it. Lucky for them, I, I think this is a really good track, actually. I dig that galloping riff in the v- verses. Joe sings with a little urgency, too. It's back to another good, catchy chorus. Then there's a spacey breakdown section that's got clean arpeggio guitars and effects on the vocals that give them kind of a floating quality. Again, the bridge, bridge. Def Leppard is like the bridge kings. <laughs> the drums still sound fucking horrible, though. But the snarling guitars come back, and then there are multiple riff sections as well as one of Steve's better solos that almost give this track an epic feel, or at least as epic as this band was capable of at the time. The lyrics are a little obscure, but this time they seem to cover just rock and roll in general. Hell, we've already had sex and drugs lyrics. So, you know, why not have a rock and roll one? There's all kinds of pitfalls and different roads to take for a rock star. It's also kind of cautioning about the dangers of the road. At least that's what I get from them. I don't know. Maybe I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. (laughs) I actually give the band points for ambition, though. They show they're capable of more complex musicality and songwriting. Actually, I really like this one a lot. I think that's something you could pick up is the intent of the band. Is like if they if they are like ambitious, they really are sincere about it. And I yeah. think that's what you can get from this. Yeah, they're like they're like heavy metal, new wave. Of, fuck that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think the other thing we tend to forget is, I mean, how how old were these kids then? Oh, they were super young. Oh, they had to be. What Rick Allen was like sixteen, seventeen, right? I, I think was yeah. he like the youngest one in the band. Yeah. yeah. The penultimate track is "Mirror, Mirror, Look Into My Eyes," written by Steve Clark and Joe Elliott. Seamus, let's have it. Another slow song that builds. It's a good rocker. It's It's got that Lady Strange heartbreak kind of feel. It's a great song. I like the song. I, I have, you know, I, I even like the lyric, the subject matter. It's like, wow, you know, Joe Elliott bought a tarot deck. Um, <laughs> but it's almost like maybe it's just a little too much of that formula by the time you get to this. You've, you've kind of heard that, that formula a little bit. I do love the space in this song. Um, and I know Ray hit on that a little bit earlier about in future albums, especially post-accident, you really get that feel for that space. This song has that um, in a way that they'll they'll begin to use later. I, I sometimes wonder when I'm listening to this song and the drums on this song, what would it have been like if Rick would have kept both arms if he hadn't gotten in the accident? Did their sound change because of the necessity of having a drummer with one arm and because technology and they both love that technology both mutt and the band or did it change because of the necessity you know what what was the dynamic in that because uh, i think aaron you said it earlier about that they were so much professional and serious sounding 
yeah um, later but this song has a certain urgency and earnesty to it that that you know these were kids our age when i was listening to this and they fucking had balls and they were rocking yeah yeah and, and i miss that in in the later stuff yes you, you know, you could take like uh, Metallica and they, oh, they found a sound and they had six albums of that sound. Uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, they found a sound and they had six albums of that sound. And I fear that, you know, kind of that's what happened with Leopard later. They had a sound and they had six albums of that sound. Yeah. And this was before we knew who and what they were and it was fresh. And I miss that. I mean, in all uh, seriousness, it's extremely admirable that they kept Rick in the band. Worked with him, help him, you know, you know, post accident, and, and brought him back. But I tend to think that I, I don't know. The drum beats are pretty. I don't know what the word is. Primitive, plain. I, I imagine he's playing with his feet and, and one arm, right. and, all, and it's electronically triggered and all that. I mean, but the beats are not. It doesn't sound. They sound mechanical, and they probably have to be. Mm-hmm. But kind of what you're saying, Seamus. I wonder if if that's part of the reason why their sound changed so much and. Mm-hmm. And to my ears, detrimental than what we're hearing, you know, with this record. I'm not sure. Did either of you? Do either of you guys ever see? I mean, of course, it's a VH1 made for VH1 movie, so you have to take. I'm sure they, there's a lot of embellishment and creative license taken with the band storyline. But I remember watching it, and um, they actually in the movie they pinpoint right back to Pyromania, even Mutt's insistence on having like a drum machine, kind of a. Like feel to it. Like at one point, like Rick Allen was like, "I don't even know why I'm here." He wants to just have a drum machine in the background. Yeah. So I don't know if that was even before the accident that 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 level of like precision and perfection was being driven by Mutt Lang. Pyromania certainly sounds like that. Yeah. And I love Pyromania. I do. But the drum, the drums in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I wonder if some of that is that you have good performers who play well on stage because music breathes. That doesn't translate to the studio. I think uh, what Steven Adler is one of those type of drummers, and then Peter Chris, and a long a long list of drummers who are adequate and even you know damn good. But then you put them up against a click track, and that's that's got to be just you know. And again, he was 16, 17 years old doing this shit. You know, you want me to sound so mechanical? That doesn't breathe. Well, but that doesn't sell either. No, I yeah, guess not. Good point. I guess not. It's, but see, but for fans like us who are really digging the music, that that makes a difference. You go, oh shit, that. Sounds like a drum machine. Yeah, that's yeah. not right. <laughs> well, yeah. Look at John Bonham and how he pushed or pulled on a on a a, a certain section of the song, and it gave it a whole different feel. Yeah, you yeah. know, he play behind a beat or ahead of a beat, and then it catch up and it it breathed. It was life. Yeah. It's hard to place an accent on an electronic kit. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, so, no kidding. I'm not sure. Jamaica wouldn't it be the same if that had been on a. <laughs> yeah, really. That song, that that drum beat, all the drum parts of that actually make that song. Yeah. Even, I think more than the rest yeah. of it. But so, yeah. Ray, what do you think? Um, the, the riff is fucking mint. It's actually one of my favorite riffs. It's kind of funny though. This is going to be a bit of a stretch, but I'm going to ask people to use their imagination. If you listen to the first verse section and you sing tools sober over the top of it, it actually fits. fits. And I know some diehard tool fans are going to like want to send death threats because of comparing <laughs> an Adam Jones riff to a, a Steve Clark or Pete Willis riff. But yeah, I'm telling you right now, there's a tool sober Mirror, mirror connection. <laughs> or, you know, maybe that's just the drugs kicking in from back in the day. Yeah. But it's also, this is where, I, I'm not sure if it's just whatever Savage is playing his bass rig through, but I almost feel like, a, is it a synth bass playing in the background? I, I'm always wondering if that's what it is or if yeah. they're just putting effects on his. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a preview of things to come oh, later on it? down the line. Holy, Holy shit, crap. is it? Like this, this oh. rocket, part one. Oh. Yeah. Um, but yeah, holy fuck! Do I hate the sound of the bass in the later records? <laughs> yeah, same. I don't even get it's like why even have him? But you know, once again, you got classic gang vocals on the chorus. They got a really moody bridge section, which I kind of like because they mess around with like a little atonal stuff. Once again, bridge the bridge, man. Um, and they got some double lead awesomeness going on there too. And I also like there's like a, almost like a fake ending in the end where you think it's done. Also, nope, they're gonna come back and smack <laughs> you again. So this is one of my favorite tracks in the album. Yeah, this tune's got a darker vibe than the rest of the album. It's kind of slower. The bass thumps low in the mix with the notes kind of clipped. 
And I, oh yeah, Rick Savage is on this album, I guess. I mean, really, as a bass player, he defines serve the song. I mean, this guy's as simple as it gets. Sometimes you even forget he's fucking there. Until the later albums when it just sounds like a synth being... All this weird shit. Oh, man. Did he ever watch like Badland shows watching Greg Chase and be like, I could be doing that? Oh, I don't know. These riffs are darker, but they're interesting, and the solo's weird, beginning with like these slides, and then Pete plays these off-kilter notes that leads to a cool harmonized guitar section before returning to the final verse. Joe's voice gets kind of screechy in spots, but it fits for the most part. I still dig it. Lyrically, the guy sees himself in the mirror and almost doesn't recognize himself. He's in bad shape, and it seems to be hinting that he's abusing drugs with a line time after time and line by line. I like the different feel of this track, and it's another winner for me. Do you think they were like, hey, let's write a Dream On type of song? Hmm. Oh, no. I never thought of it that way. I mean, just lyrically. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder, you know, like you were saying, they, they definitely have ambitions. And I just, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know. Yeah. And I guess that, you know, that that really is kind of a thing. I mean, there's a couple different artists that, like, you know, I'm sitting back reflecting upon my yeah. road-weary life kind of thing. And, yeah. yeah. And that brings us to the final track, No, No, No. Written by Rick Savage, Pete Willis, and Joe Elliott. Seamus, last track. No. <laughs> oh, that's a good song. It's a good lead. You know, the interesting lyrics. She was a foxy rocker with a Roxy roller and unchanged sex machine. Yeah. You know, it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and, and honestly, can you imagine a young man of Joe's age saying no? He's really? not saying no to Mike. No. No. <laughs> no. Good, good song, good closer, I guess. I, I thought the lyrics were okay, but the vocal on this was really weak. Um, yeah. It's in the mix. It's kind of a punky attitude song, which is okay. I just don't know if that's what I'd want to leave people with. Like, this could have been hidden in the you know the middle of an album somewhere, and they could have ended with Mirror Mirror, which I think would have been a, a much better impression to leave with. But overall, it's it's a good it's a good song, and and you know yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, Ray. Um, the song it's it really fucking cooks along. It's a good strong rocker. Rick Allen. I mean, he doesn't like go crazy with the mega fill, but he gets at least show off a little bit with Joe Elliott in the chorus or in the verse section, which I kind of liked with the two of them playing together. I'm not to discount the other guys in the band, but it's kind of cool, and they just got to do that kind of a thing. And once again, uh, Willis and Clark have riffs to boot, and I got to go back to rocking Mike Cordis and bucket of riffs. Yeah, they have a lot of they, like they, they came with like a lot of good riffs, and they don't think they got a lot of credit for that later on. I, I wish they could kind of stuck with this kind of riffage, truthfully. Yeah, um, don't don't you think a, a normal band would have gotten five albums out of the riffs they used in this one album? Yeah. Oh yeah, oh, easily yeah. without yep. a doubt. Good point. And the solo itself is decent, but I just think it needs to be turned up in the mix a little bit more. They're just kind of like. Off to the side, which I yeah. thought was kind of a lame move on their part, but no, it's good. Yeah, here we have the fast rocking closer, which unfortunately emphasizes those fucking drums, <laughs> but the riffs are fast and hard, and the solo by Pete is sloppy and ripping. Joe's just belting out the lyrics, which concern a 17-year-old unchained sex machine, who Joe keeps trying to say no to, but it doesn't seem like he was able to fend her off. Yikes, I oh guess boy. it was the times, right? Uh, is that we'll, we'll go with that. The song is what it is. It's a tight, fast rocker to cap off the record, and the original vinyl album had Joe repeating that, no, 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 to infinity. Oh, like, It was one of those, like, it got caught in the groove, and it, you had to, like, physically take it off. It was like the end of Pyromania. The yep. Yep. Yes. <laughs> Yep. The original cassette had him screaming no 46 times until the tape abruptly ran out. <laughs> and then later they just had him fading out on CD. Digital. <laughs> Overall, this is not my favorite track, but it serves its purpose. You know, mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with it, I guess. You know, mm-hmm. Not the best. Now that the track by track is completed, we'll discuss our final thoughts and album ratings. 
For you new listeners, the rating is a zero to five system, with five being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a zero, which is the worst piece of shit ever recorded. <laughs> Seamus, what are your final thoughts on High and Dry? A couple things we didn't talk about was the cover art. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. It's done by, uh, what is it, Hypnosis, the English art yep. design that did so many classic album covers. Oh, and like Pink it, Floyd, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Pink Floyd, Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap, ELO, oh, yeah. Sabbath, Wings, Genesis, a, a long list. And yeah. it, it gets lost now because if you actually get a physical product instead of a download, it's a small, you know, what is it, five by five CD. But back then, getting the album and opening it up and looking at the front, the cover, pulling out the sheet and seeing, you know, all the names that were involved in it was a big thing for me. Yeah, like, that was special. I, yeah, I, I, That's what I made vinyl special. Yeah, yeah. You're absorbing the music and you're reading all the liner notes and, and things like that. And I, I always thought this was a cool album cover. Um, yeah. And then just to touch up on, you know, this was Mutt Lange before he became the Mutt Lange. Hmm. What he started with, with ACDC, because, you know, ACDC had Back in Black in the can, but it hadn't broke yet when he was in the recording studio with these guys. So, you know, it, it was definitely a good marriage of a young band who had ambition, like Aaron said, and a young young-ish producer who also had that ambition. He would go on to do, you know, five-time Grammy uh, and, and do some great work. But there's somebody else on this album that we, we never talk mostly. I don't know about you guys, but we don't often talk about engineers when we talk about mm-hmm. albums and everything. But I wanted to at least give a shout-out to Mike Shipley. He was the engineer on this project. He'd done several projects with both Mutt and Def Leppard. He won a Grammy in 2011 uh, with his work Paper Airplane by Alison Krauss. And the reason I wanted to is, is, is these are the unsung heroes who put mics in 100 different places to get it just right. And, yep. and, and exactly. maybe, Aaron, he didn't do the best mic placement on the drums on this one. But Mike killed himself in 2013. And the unsung heroes that put these albums together to do all the hard work, I just wanted to get a, get a shout out to somebody who, who wasn't rich and famous but did a lot of the work. Um, right on. Excellent. As far as the album goes, it's a 3.5 in all-time albums. As far as Def Leppard albums go, it's probably a 5. Mm. Mm. That makes sense. I understand that. I, I, I can pick up on that. Yeah. Ray? I'm going to go I'm gonna go with a 4.5. I love this album. Um, not a Desert Island disc, but there's a lot of great stuff going on in this album. There is um, great riffs. Uh, you mentioned the, some of the, uh, the tone of the guitars. It's kind of like some of it's like you pick up on the trebliness on the solos, which mm. I really like. And I, this is a kind of a direction I wish they'd kind of explored a little bit more. I think they could have even maybe gone some other directions. And that's not to discount Pyromania, which I think is a great album. But I kind of this for me is their pinnacle. So I can see as a Def Leppard goes, album goes. I'm gonna say like Shame said a five. But yeah. as far as like all albums, I'll go for a four and a half. Yeah. It seems almost hard to believe now, but at the time of High and Dry, Def Leppard was thought of as one of the leaders of the so-called new wave of British Chevy metal, which emerged in the late 70s as an antidote to the punk movement that was beginning to wane and before the post-punk movement could fully take hold. These bands included Iron Maiden, Diamond Head, Saxon, Angel Witch, Tigers of Pantang, and Samson, among many others. But Def Leppard had ambitions far beyond that of just becoming a successful heavy metal band. They already had their eye on America, touring there more often than the UK and actively courting an American fan base. They also enlisted Mutt Lang to produce this record, largely based off his work with ACDC and his methodology of meticulously recording and shaping the sound of the music seemed to mesh well with what the band wanted to do. Mutt's fingerprints are all over this album, but it still has a hard edge to it that I find very appealing. High and Dry is my favorite Def Leppard album. It shows growth in songwriting from the first album, yet it doesn't completely give itself over to the pop-infused songcraft the band would embrace in the ensuing years. I think Pete Willis brought a charge to this band with his playing, and it was something they sorely missed after they fired him for excessive alcohol abuse. But what do I know? Because after this record, Def Leppard hit the mother load with the next two albums. They also took it on the chin with a series of tragedies that resulted in Rick Allen losing an arm in a car accident and Steve Clark passing away from an alcohol and drug overdose. But that's for another podcast. Here, Def Leppard sounds young, vital, and ready to conquer. And to me, this was when they were at their very best. I give High and Dry a four and a half, and of all the band's recordings, this is the one I continually go back to the most. They put out some good music later in their career, but for my money, they never equaled their second effort. This is the one, folks. 
And from Album Addicts, Stephen Maynard Clark, rest in peace. Now we'd like to thank Mr. James Seamus Dillard for returning to the podcast and gabbing about Def Leppard with us. Seamus, it was fun once again, man. Uh, guys, thank you so much. I always enjoy this. Come back anytime, yeah, man. Yeah, please do. Uh, if, if, if you got one you want to suggest, another one you want to suggest, let us know. We always have an open chair for you. Wonderful, man. Send me something uh, via you know PM or email. We'll, we'll figure out the next one. Ray, feel better, brother. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Working on it. Working on it. <laughs> And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast at places like iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it. If you take the time to do that, we'll read your review right here on the show. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast, including the Album Addicts branch of the show. You can also recommend the show on Facebook if you'd prefer to do it that way. And yes, we'll read your Facebook recommendation on the podcast. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with us? Shoot us an email and we'll set it up. We're always looking for co-pilots to host a show of this, like Seamus. And we would also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for Album Addicts, I'm Aaron. And I'm Ray. See ya. Where's that confounded bridge? I'm just going to take a quick, quick, I'm going to take a quick snort. I got this cold. It doesn't bother me, so we can dig into this thing. You know, those people, those happy people listening to you watch Snot Rockets in the middle of their uh, podcast. If you hear All my, right. if you guys hear my cat, let me know. I'll, I'll put him out. Nah, we'll, we'll throw him in. <laughs> how, how many, I don't know how many podcasts have my dogs with their collars jingling or barking. Oh, sure. Man, my dogs are always in these stupid things. So Now, there's two versions of how they got the title. The first one is what I heard, Stephen Clark's Losing His Virginity. The other one, really boring one, is is as they were writing the record, they were just throwing out song titles. They had, I guess they hadn't had lyrics all written yet, uh-huh. and one of them was just like, and they would make up time, uh, you know, t- length of time lengths for each song, uh-huh. and they just wrote down one like a switch as a title song, six minutes and twenty five minutes, uh, uh, twenty five seconds. I mean, six minutes twenty five seconds, and they looked at the song title. They liked how it looked, and they well, we got this instrumental. He didn't have a title for it, so they just threw that on there. Uh, so, I, I prefer it's, it's Steve stating a statement for that. I like time. I like Steve's. I like that better. Yeah. <laughs> and what a way to celebrate that moment in your life. <laughs> so I'm confused. Did he last six minutes and twenty five seconds? <laughs> <laughs> I've got the reserves. Wait. That's not bad. <laughs> that's kind of like twice, isn't it? <laughs> Oh shit. (laughs) Alright, let's go. I went so quick. Should I keep my rhino virus to myself? But man. (laughs) Do you guys, like, on this song, I kind of hear, like, is this a Dennis D. Young song that they found left in the studio? (laughs) (laughs) Under the night. I, like, do you. I I can hear faint whispers of chopping broccoli. Where Jimmy Pop Ali is just screaming, The drummer for Death Metal only has one arm! <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs>